Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. My day job is as a coach, helping people live better lives. I coach executives and leaders. I coach entrepreneurs and I coach civilians who are looking to improve their lives, their health, their relationships. Basically, it allows me to do what I didn't think was possible, which is to help people completely erase bad habits and different ways of being, erase negative feelings and replace them with positive ones rather than just help people develop new strategies to compete with the old ones or new thought patterns to debate the old thought patterns. And I'm looking for people to work with. And I have reduced my rates a lot so that I can just get as much practice in as I can. So I am going to raise them back up to my normal fees. But right now I just need a lot, a lot of practice and feedback and I have teachers and mentors. So if you're interested in getting my best coaching better than I've ever done at a big discount, email me hj at plantyourself.com. So let's get on with the show. Today's episode is bittersweet for me. It's the last episode that I am recording in my home studio in North Carolina. You might be able to hear a lot more echo than usual because all the stuff is off the walls, all the sound treatment, everything is packed up and we are moving out of the house um, and going traveling. And so podcast will take on a little bit of a different flavor as I'm uh, jet setting around or train setting or bus setting, whatever we end up doing, uh, starting out in Barcelona for a month or two, and then moving on from there. Um, it's sweet because today's guest is someone who has been an important part of my life since roughly I was 10 years old, and he first hit the public uh, imagination and noticing with his book, Animal Liberation. And I'm talking about Peter Singer, who whose work uh, for the last 40 plus years has really been um, the foundation of the animal rights, animal welfare, vegan movement. He is the philosopher who, first of all, put ethics and how we should live and what matters to us as human beings back into philosophy at a time when that sort of question wasn't really you know, a prestigious approach for academic philosophers and his arguments and his relentless digging into how we treat animals for our comfort, for our taste buds, for our convenience um, really has changed the, the zeitgeist in many ways. And of course, we're far off from a world in which animal suffering is globally acknowledged as something we need to do something about. But he really started a movement. And when I found out that he was doing a, uh, a speaking tour and has a new book coming out, which is actually an old book, uh, Animal Liberation, is being, it was completely rewritten. I've read most of it. Um, and most of the studies are from the last five or six years and, and the examples. And it's called Animal Liberation Now. And so um, we begin the conversation with me asking uh, Peter to talk about the speaking tour, which is coming up next week, which is why I'm hurrying to get this podcast out. Literally, when I finish recording the outro to this podcast, I'm unplugging everything and putting it in boxes. So uh, you'll, next time you'll be hearing from me, it'll be on different equipment in a different part of the world. So 
Let's get to it. Without further ado, Peter Singer, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you, Harry. It's great to be with you. Yeah, so I'm, I, I have to, you know, full transparency. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a little nervous because you're, you're someone who has been important in my life and in the world since I was ten. Um, I think Animal Liberation came out in '75. That's right. Is that when you were ten? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's. Uh, I'm, yeah, I've got a few years on you. Uh, so I was you know, twenty-nine, I guess then. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, and, um, you are just coming out with a, uh, I guess a revised version with a new, with a semi new title. Yeah, it's a semi new book. I think you could say, um, at least half of the material is new, um, because it's such a long time since I actually revised animal liberation. The last real revision was 1990. So mm. a lot of things have changed. A lot of things have happened since 1990 and, uh, I wanted to write about them. So that's why the new book. Yeah, and I'm, you know, as I'm reading through it, you have you know 2018 studies and and references to COVID. It, se it seems like there was a, a whole new body of research, that, or at least up there was. updating. Was, was, yeah, no, it took me uh, quite a long time. I guess 18 months of, of work really to uh, update the book. Oh, wow, that's that's hard. I've written books and I can't bear to look at again, let alone think about <laughs> revising. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, this one did have an influence on a lot of people, and I wanted to continue to have an influence. But if it's going to have an influence on the current generation of people, you can't go telling them about things that happened in the 1980s. That's clearly not going to work. That's ancient history to them. Uh-huh. Right. And so the new book is called Animal Liberation Now. That's right. And it's um, published on uh, May the 23rd. Um, so I'm not sure when this is going to air, actually, but uh, I suppose it'll be out by the time people are listening to this. Is that right? Yeah, well, I'm going to try to get this out as quickly as possible so that we can we can promote both oh, the good. book. Okay. And then you've got you've got something else going on, right, that we're uh, timely for promotion. Absolutely. I've got a speaking tour. I'm going to speak, be speaking live at, in Washington, D.C. on the 26th of May, in Los Angeles on the 29th, in San Francisco on the 30th and in New York City on June the 1st. Uh, they're all big in-person uh, events. Uh, we're hoping to get good crowds to kind of rally the animal movement and bring people together who are concerned about these issues, environmental issues, food issues. Uh, and everybody who gets a ticket gets a free copy of the book. Uh, and you can get your tickets by going to www.thinkinc. That's think and inc uh, dot live slash singer and uh, if you put in a discount code I can give everyone listening uh, a 50% discount off the tickets so put in the discount code singer in caps uh, and then the numbers five zero so singer 50 will get you 50% off Oh, excellent. So my, my inclination, which um, I'm going to have to negotiate with my wife, is to just, after this call, just rush it and get it uploaded today. So that would be uh, the 29th. That would be terrific. The, that the be reason wonderful. I hesitate yeah. is we're, we're moving out of our house, house on Sunday. So there's, there's a few other things to do. But uh, Right. But yeah, yeah. Important. I can imagine that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, twentieth. Um, yeah. So I had, a, you know, been reading. Uh, full disclosure: I didn't finish either of the the book manuscripts that you recommended, but I hopefully have read enough to um, mm -hmm. to hold up my end of the conversation. And what one of the things that really struck me um, 
around, especially the, the, the book of, of sort of philosophical essays. Um, mm -hmm. Ethics in the real world. Ethics in the real world. So it's a, it's just, it's yeah. a, first, the first thing that struck me was, was how readable it was. And I'm not used to philosophy yeah. being readable. Yeah, well, this is a selection of essays that I wrote, not for academic philosophy journals, but uh, most of them are op-eds that I wrote for newspapers and similar, more popular places. So I wanted to make them accessible, and uh, I'm I'm glad. Sounds like I succeeded from what you're saying. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, what's the difference between what you write for the public to make it accessible and what you write for fellow philosophers? Like, is it just you know, jargon or different types of arguments or? I try and avoid jargon, even what I write for my fellow philosophers. I don't like it, but it's more a matter of, of going into things in depth. So the pieces in Ethics in the Real World are mostly relatively short. They're like, some of them are as short as 800 words. Some of them might be 2,000 or 2,500. But um, most academic articles are uh, around 5,000 and some of them go, 10 or 12,000 words. Uh, and then, of course, I've written academic books too, which um, might run to 300 pages. So that's that's the bigger difference, that you can go into more depth. You can uh, discuss the literature that already exists. I think for people who don't know that literature at all, and you mm. know, right when I write for popular media, there's no point in going to that. I, I just want to make the issues clear. Mm -hmm. But uh, when you write for academics, you know, you... You have uh, footnotes and you cite what's already been said and you discuss whether it agrees with what you're saying or if it disagrees, you discuss why you don't think that it's right. Um, so it's, it's, it's much more detailed is, is the major difference. Mm -hmm. So when, when I um, was living in Princeton for a year, I, rent, I rented a house from a, a professor of philosophy, um, Saul Kripke. And oh, right. Very famous professor of philosophy. Yeah, so it's like the preeminent logical philosopher. So he left all his books. I tried to read some of them, and the two things I got was I did I was not qualified to understand anything he was saying, and I was highly skeptical of, of whether it had any real world significance. And I, that's probably unfair since I clearly wasn't capable of of understanding a single sentence in name and names and naming, but. There is a, a tradition in philosophy that is not for mortals like me. And it, it feels like from your very youngest days in the profession, you uh, resisted that. And you, you, you were trying to do something else. Can you talk about kind of how you went into philosophy? Yes, I went into philosophy to some extent by accident. Um, when I finished high school, I was going to do law. And in Australia, you can go straight into a law degree out of high school, mm. uh, which is what I applied to do. And I was accepted by the University of Melbourne's law school. But uh, you see an advisor before you actually begin your studies. And the advisor looked at my high school grades and said, oh, you've done very well in history and literature and things of that sort. You might find law a little bit dry. Why don't you combine it with an arts law degree? You could do that. And it took an extra year. Um, so I started doing that and I got more interested in the philosophy um, and never finished the law degree. But um, but you're right, I, I was interested in the philosophy that made a difference to people's lives. I wanted I wanted to do something that I could talk to people in, in, in a pub about and, and they wouldn't laugh at it, right? So, so if you say to things, well, I'm doing philosophy and 
um, I'm interested in uh, whether I can really know that I'm not dreaming now, right? Which is a big question in philosophy. It goes back to Descartes, you know, maybe, maybe I'm dreaming, maybe there is an evil demon who is deceiving me, or in uh, the modern version of it, maybe I'm in the matrix. Um, and uh, uh, how can I know that I'm not? Well, you know, actually now I come to think of it with the matrix having been so popular, maybe you could talk to people about that in the pub. But certainly then it just seemed a bit crazy to say, how do I know that I'm not dreaming now? Um, but I, on the other hand, in ethics, um, you know, how ought I to live? Uh, what's right and wrong? Um, the big issues of the day, say abortion was a big issue when I was a undergraduate in Australia. Um, it was still illegal. Should it be illegal? You know, how could you justify it? Um, I got really interested in, in those sorts of issues. Uh, and that's why when I went on to do graduate work, I focused on uh, ethics and political philosophy. Mm. And was, was that uh, in vogue at the time? Or I know like the ancient Greeks were all into ethics, but it seems like um, it had become sort of a, the soft underbelly of the philosophy profession. That's correct, actually. Yes, it, it was not regarded as a sort of not as prestigious or something like that. And there were some uh, philosophers who said it isn't really a subject. Um, all we can do, they said, is analyze the meanings of the moral terms. So we can tell you what we think ought or right or wrong mean. Um, maybe we can discuss whether there's some objective truth that you're referring to or whether they're just expressing our subjective attitudes. But if you tried to discuss uh, what's right or wrong or, you know, whether abortion is justifiable or not, um, whether the war in Vietnam, which was going on then, is uh, is something that we ought to be supporting or opposing, um, they would say that's not the business of the philosophy of the philosopher. Uh, that's the business of the preacher. One of them said, A.J. Eyre, a famous philosopher, said, you know, that we leave that to the preacher or the politician, right? mm. which is a very strange thing to say because Eyre was not religious. So why he would leave anything to the preacher, uh, I find really hard to understand. And who thinks that our politicians are the best authorities on, on what's right and wrong? That's not so clear either. So, um, you know, they were very dismissive. Um, but fortunately, uh, that was just starting to change when I was doing my graduate work. And I think it was starting to change really because of the student movement at the time and the fact that, that students were insisting on saying, you know, tell us something about whether war is justifiable and whether this war in Vietnam is justifiable. That's an important issue for us. We're, we're being drafted to, uh, to go and fight there. Should we accept that or resist? Uh, and we want our courses to be relevant to these questions or, or to the civil rights movement, which was going on at the same time. So in the end, to their credit, philosophers responded to that and it did become possible to actually do what I call practical ethics or you can call it applied ethics. Uh, and that became uh, an important part of philosophy. Mm. So, you know, I, I first came across your writings in, in my own early interest in vegetarianism and then veganism. And um, at the, you know, at the time and arguably still today, like, I'm not always like a nice person. Right? And I know and I know people whom I just regard as like incredibly decent human beings like, like just somehow they didn't have the trauma that I did or something happened with their genes. They're just like really kind and warm and genial and compassionate. And I think in my mind, as, as I started reading ethics in the real world, I've, I still have this sort of confusion around the difference between ethics and decency. 
because like they're these incredibly decent people, but they're eating meat, they're they're having dairy, and and there's not really a dialogue that I knew how to have that that didn't feel like I was being an asshole, like I was being accusatory. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between sort of like basic human decency and the broader field of ethics? So I think I think decency is, as you say, you know, the way you relate to your friends and family and other people in your life. Um, but it doesn't require critical thinking about what is accepted in your society by most people at the time. Uh, so these people who you would say are decent, but they're just going along with the conventional views about um, eating meat and animal products. They're not looking into where they come from, how are the animals treated. Uh, still less are they looking into what is really the correct ethical relationship for humans to have with animals? Are we just entitled to use them and treat them as uh, machines for converting grains into flesh? Uh, and I think, you know, I'm sure that if you went back to um, Georgia in uh, 1830 or something, you would have felt that there were plenty of decent people there who owned slaves. Um, and, you know, maybe even they were relatively kind to their slaves as compared to some people, you know, that they would say, no, these are not good people. They are brutally cruel to their slaves. But, you know, yes, we, we, we have slaves, but we treat them well. Um, so, you know, that's, that's compatible with being thought of as a decent person in your time and your climate because you're not thinking more seriously about should people of African descent um, actually be enslaved by white people? Is, is, is that justified? Mm. And, and it's actually pretty amazing when you think of some of the people who lived and wrote in the slave era without criticizing them, that they could have such a blind spot. But then when you look at us today and you think about the blind spot that we have about non-human animals, it actually becomes less surprising that people were like that in the slave era. Hmm. Yeah. So I guess I, I'd always thought about it a little bit differently in that sort of like the difference between me and other people who didn't see things the way I did was like, I'm better at systems thinking because I had been trained in a broader way. But you say it's not it's not just like, you know, you can't like the systems are too complex for people to understand the relationship between, you know, the, the toast that I eat today and the the plight of farm workers somewhere, an animal somewhere else. But you're saying it's, it's not just system thinking. It's really an unwillingness or an inability to look at your own society critically. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, <clears throat> there are some issues about food that are quite complicated and you need to really think hard. But um, I think it doesn't really require clear systems thinking to look at a video of how animals are treated in factory farms um, and there are plenty of them available for people who want to look um, and then say this is not right and then say oh but this could be what happened to the animals I ate for dinner last night um, and I don't want to be supporting that by buying the products of that way of treating animals. That seems to me to be a fairly straightforward way of thinking uh, hmm. And there's something else going on. There's something like um, this 
don't disturb me sort of thinking, you know, I'm, I, this is the way we eat, this is the way my friends eat, I'm not going to question it, um, that, that stops people from even looking at those fairly basic facts. Mm. All right. And I think, you know, there's also the sense of, of, of a heritage. Like if, if we've been doing it for so long, it must be okay. Yes, I'm sure that's a big factor as well. Uh, um, so just practically, like, what, you know, um, what do you see as the tools of a philosophically minded person or a philosopher or an activist can use to bring about um, effective change? Right. If we, you know, if you say like all they need, all we need to do is is shove the the video of the mistreatment in their faces, and it will change them. We 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 pretty much know that that tends to backfire in most cases. What what do you you know as a philosopher? Do you have a different tool set or approach than just an activist? Uh, I, I think the special tools of a philosopher are reason and persuasion, and maybe. Uh, you know, when you said shoving the video in their face is going to produce a backlash because they don't want things shoved in their face. Um, they need to be open to it a little bit more. Uh, and philosophical argument does persuade some people. It doesn't persuade everybody, unfortunately. But um, thinking about the ethical status of animals and how we should treat them certainly affects quite a lot of people. I mean, I've just had many, many people over the years who've come up to me and said they read Animal Liberation and they stopped eating meat you know, mm. from that moment on. Um, so that's a big life change that is made by essentially philosophical argument. Uh, I also actually participated in a study uh, run by the Californian philosopher Eric Schwitzgabel at the University of California, Riverside, um, in which we wanted to test whether a class on the ethics of eating meat could change what people ate. And Eric was a bit sceptical about this. He'd been done other work to show that, you know, people who do a lot of ethics don't necessarily behave any better than other people. Uh, and I was more positive because of those anecdotal experiences that I mentioned. And the great thing about this study was it was possible, firstly, to randomise students in a really large philosophy course, um, introductory course, into two groups, half of which got a class on the ethics of eating animals and half of which got a, another different ethics class that was just the control group, had nothing to do with the study. Um, and secondly, because students there used their ID cards to purchase meals at the cafeteria, we could actually track what they were buying and whether they were eating, whether they were buying meat meals or not. So we did the study, we had the class, it was just a single class on, on meat ethics, and then it was a big job in gathering the data over the months following um, and analysing it. But we did find a statistically significant drop in meat consumption in the students who had taken the class in meat ethics and no change in the meat consumption of people in the control group. So it was a pretty rigorous study um, and it was a wonderful way, I thought, of showing that yeah, philosophy makes a difference. It doesn't make a huge difference, right? It wasn't that everybody stopped ordering meat who was in that, had that discussion on, on meat ethics, but enough to show statistically that this was the effect of, of the class. Mm. So one of, one of the thoughts I was having while I was reading the initial chapters in Ethics in the Real World was 
that, okay, I've sort of been exposed to some of this, but it's been either haphazard or based on, like there, there's been no systematic attempt by my society to give me these tools. And it's almost like, like somebody reading arithmetic book, like, oh, you could multiply numbers. You could, like, like I think, you know, there's an argument that you're making, or, you know, at least a, a meta argument that, that human beings need to be taught ethics. It's not something that we, that's just obvious. To us. Uh, I, I think you're right, except we need to clarify, because if you say human beings need to be taught ethics, a lot of people are saying, oh, you're going to indoctrinate me in your values, right? Um, mm. You know, am I going to be taught that um, abortion is wrong if I go to a school in Florida? Um, and am mm. I going to be taught that abortion is justifiable if I go to a school in New York State? Um, so uh, that's not the tool. The, the tool is the the methods of thinking about these issues and bringing them in line with our values and we will we can teach as much ethics as we like to people but as long as we're really just teaching those thinking tools and not trying to indoctrinate them then we are going to end up with people with with different views on on a range of issues that's that's understandable but they will be thinking better and you know you can tell people who are actually thinking well, even though they disagree with you. Uh, and that's, that's part of the job of every philosophy professor or ethics professor who grades papers because you don't want to give good grades only to those who agree with you. You want to good, give good grades to those who can argue well against you um, because that's showing that they have the skills of argument as well as you know, people who may argue well in favor of your position. But it's, it's the quality and level of the argument that merits the grade, not the view that the student ends up with. Mm, I love that. And, and, you know, from my perspective, one of the, the poisons of the modern world is an inability to talk to each other when we have, you know, differences along certain uh, axes. And it sounds like the tools of, of philosophical inquiry, methods of thinking, would be a way, if not to sort of depersonalize a little bit, at least to allow people to assume good faith and approach each other with curiosity, like help me see how meat eating is okay in your worldview. It seems like it's a, it's a, it's a way that yeah. um, incre increases respect at least. Yeah, I think that's important. And, and when I teach my classes in practical ethics at Princeton, I do invite people to the class who disagree with me. Um, you know, so say on the abortion issue, I've, for many years been inviting someone who is um, opposed to abortion and we have a civil discussion and I think students appreciate and sometimes are surprised that you can have that civil discussion and you can actually be perfectly f good friends with somebody who disagrees with you on an issue that goes as deep as that. Hmm. Has that gotten harder over the years? You know, I'm, I'm reading articles about, you know, cancel culture and, and free speech attacks, both from the right and the left. Is it harder? I don't to think it's got, I don't think it's got, yeah, I don't think it's got harder to do in among philosophers. I think we still have the same standards and the same views, but it has got harder to do out in the general community. And there are some views that really struggle to find a home where they can get published. Um, and it's exactly for that reason that uh, I and a couple of colleagues 
have founded uh, the Journal of Controversial Ideas, which I do write about in one of the essays in, in Ethics in the Real World, uh, because uh, we want to promote that forum where uh, good, well-argued uh, articles can express controversial views. Uh, and we've found many, many on, there have been many occasions where people have sent us articles which they couldn't get published elsewhere, mm. which got rejected, which, our, you know, we send them out for peer review and our reviewers say, you know, well, not always, of course, but sometimes they say, yes, this is a well-argued paper. It deserves to be published and it is controversial. And we publish it and the authors are grateful for us because they had been rejected elsewhere. Um, and uh, we provide them with a forum where we're not frightened of controversy. Um, we want to have controversy. We want to have the discussion because we think that if, even if we disagree, and as editors, we do quite often disagree with the views expressed in the papers we publish, but we think the best way to refute uh, a view that you disagree with is to publish, have it published and then write replies showing why it's wrong. Mm. How, so how is that different from, let's say, um, the search for knowledge or arguments in, say, hard sciences? So, you know, in, in my world around plant-based eating, I'm, I'm familiar with lots of studies and there's, you know, the camp that's com completely convinced that 100% vegan diet with no added oil, sugar, or salt is the optimal human diet. There's a lot of other people who argue different perspectives. I'm not well trained enough to, to argue, every, you know, to really evaluate those points either. But it seems to me like one of them is wrong or, or <laughs> there, there's some objective truth out there. How does that work in philosophy where at some point you're like, well, we're going to agree to disagree, or do you feel like if they just understood this, or like how how, how do these you know how do you settle debates? Yeah. Who who gets to be an impartial referee there? You can't always settle the debates. It is in that way. It's it's different from the hard sciences. Not not that there aren't these debates as you just mentioned in the hard sciences, but if you can run enough controlled studies or experiments, say that the question about what what diet is optimal? Uh, that question may be a little too broad because it may be that some diets are optimal for some people and others for, for others. It might be that they have different genetic constitutions that affect what they can digest and, and what is good. But, you know, you could find that out. You could run careful studies. They might be difficult to do um, because they might you might have to follow people for years. But in principle, at least, you could run studies that everybody would agree these are good studies, methodology is solid, um, and this is what they show. Uh, and then you would say, right, so these studies settled that question. Just as, for example, you know, at one stage there was debate about whether smoking caused lung cancer. I think that question has very long been settled by um, really clear studies that show that it does. Uh, and you don't get that really in philosophy because we're not, talking about controlled studies. I mean, as I said, Eric uh, Schwitzgabel and I did that study about the effect of philosophy teaching, but that itself is not philosophy. It's, it's uh, empirical research. Um, but if you're debating issues like the moral status of animals, what are our obligations to people in extreme poverty? Um, you know, when is a war justified? Uh, there's a whole lot of issues which I discuss in those essays in ethics in the real world. Um, you, you know, you, they're, they're questions of values, they're normative issues. Uh, you can't run a study to settle it one way or the other. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but some issues get settled just, I, I think, by the weight of argument uh, once you get rid of prejudices that people have. So you know, we mentioned slavery before. I think that's pretty much a settled issue um, because once you get rid of prejudices against people who look different from you, you and come from a different part of the world, um, then it's pretty easy to see that enslaving uh, a human being is wrong. Uh, and I hope that eventually we'll start to see and start to agree um, that the way we treat animals uh, is wrong, that, that the disregard of their interests, the sacrifice of their major interests in having a life that is free of significant suffering, um, that those, those interests uh, we are not justified in outweighing by the fact that we want to eat a particular kind of, of food, food that tastes in a certain way or has a certain chewiness that uh, we are looking for that we don't get from plant-based foods, for example. Um, I, I, th I think those arguments will be regarded as settled um, in some time to come, whether it's a decade or two or uh, 50 years or more, I'm not sure. But um, I think at some stage, the way we treat animals will be regarded um, you know, with a similar sort of bewilderment that we could accept this, that we could put billions, tens of billions of animals, in, in fact, hundreds of billions if we're including fish raised in factory farms, um, that we could put them through that just in order to, because we like the way they taste. Um, I think people will be as bewildered by that as they are, as we are now about the fact that people could accept slavery. Hmm. So, yeah, I'd like to, to dive into that a little bit, because one of the things that surprised me uh, as I began reading Animal Liberation Now is your emphasis on the issue of suffering rather than killing. Because in almost all the discussions yeah. that I've had, it's like, is it OK to kill animals? And it's hard, you know, and then they'll say, well, what about the animals killing animals? It's part of life. It's part of nature. Human, you know, and I I've always found myself without purchase and. You know, I love the way you think and write in ways that, that kind of remove that from the equation for now. Can you, can you talk about how, like maybe, maybe even like when did you first think that eating animals was wrong? Like what was the first impulse? And then how did you go about finding a philosophical basis that could sustain that perspective? Yeah, I can date that pretty precisely. Uh, it happened in 1970, so I was 24 years old. Um, I was a graduate student in philosophy, and I had been reading and studying ethics already for a couple of years, um, and yet I hadn't really thought about animals as a serious ethical issue at all. As I said, I was interested in abortion, I was interested in the war in Vietnam, and civil rights for minorities, and so on, uh, but not animals. Uh, and then I happened to have lunch with a fellow graduate student, a Canadian called Richard Keshen, who I'd started talking to after a class that had nothing to do with animals either. And we continued the discussion. He said, come and have lunch with me at my college. Uh, so I did. Um, for lunch, the, the, the hot dish was spaghetti with a, a brown sauce on top. Um, and Richard said to the person serving, can you tell me, is there meat in that sauce? And when he, the answer was yes, he took the salad plate, which was the only option that didn't have meat. Uh, and, you know, we sat down, continued the discussion, but um, I wanted to ask him about that because it was very unusual to meet a vegetarian in 1970. Uh, mm. I don't think I'd known any vegetarians, really. I'd probably met 
uh, well, I'd actually been to India, and so I'm sure I'd, I'd met vegetarians in India, but, uh, you know, they had cultural reasons that weren't going to appeal to me, weren't going to get me to change what I was eating. Uh, so um, so I, I asked him, and, and I thought perhaps he would say what you just said, that, well, I think killing is wrong. I thought maybe he's a pacifist, um, and I was not a pacifist. I thought and still think that it was justifiable to resist uh, the Nazis, as I think today it's justifiable to resist uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Um, so, uh, you know, there were many answers he could have given, which I would have argued against quite strongly. But um, he said, I don't think it's right to treat animals the way that we treat them in order to turn them into meat. Uh, so even from the way he put it, it was the lives that the animals were living, not the fact that they were killed that was relevant. And I said, what do you mean by that? Don't they have good lives? They're all outside in the grass. They're, they've got, they, they, they don't go hungry. They're protected from predators. And he said, no, it's actually not like that. Um, a lot of them are, are brought indoors. They're closely confined. They never get to walk out in the sunshine. Um, and I said, really? Uh, is there anything written about that? And, and he directed me to the only book that was written about that at the time, a book by Ruth Harrison called Animal Machines, which I found very compelling because she quoted from the farming magazine, something that I've learned and, um, and did in a, do in Animal Liberation and Animal Liberation Now. Um, and it was clear that the attitude of these farmers that she was quoting was really that these animals were just useful machines for converting the grain they were being fed into uh, meat, milk, or eggs. Uh, so I started to think really, well, mm, is that justified? And then I, then I said, well, what are the philosophers who I admire say about this? So I started to look for philosophers who had written about the issue of animals. Um, and the justifications for eating animals were just so bad. I mean, a lot of philosophers ignored it, right? That was one interesting thing. That just wasn't an issue for them that they discussed. But those who did touch upon it, um, so Aristotle said, uh, the, 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 more, the less rational serve the more rational. Um, and he used that to justify us in eating meat, but he also used it to justify Greeks in enslaving barbarians because barbarians, he thought, were less rational. Well, I mean, you know, I didn't think that the fact that you were less rational take humans, you know, there are humans who differ in their <laughs> intellectual abilities. Um, we're not justified in, in using them for our purposes, um, so, so, let alone for raising them, fattening them for food and killing them and eating them. Um, so, you know, that didn't work. Um, Kant had this idea that humans are self-aware or autonomous or something. But I think, um, and actually... It's interesting that one of America's leading Kantian philosophers now, Christine Korsgaard at Harvard, agrees. I think he was confusing what it is to be a moral agent, you know, to actually be able to capable of taking moral decisions and to be somebody who is worthy of being blamed or praised for their actions. For that, you have to be self-aware and you have to think, what should I do? And I agree that most animals don't think that. Um, but uh, to be what we call a moral patient, that is someone whom we have to act morally towards, um, it's enough to say they're capable of feeling pain or they suffer. And then there's a question about whether we're justified in inflicting pain. That's the crucial line, I think. That's why you know, rocks are not moral patients because there's nothing we can do to a rock that is really going to hurt the rock. Um, but any being capable of feeling pain is. So, you know, I read some more of these philosophers, and um, including modern ones, 
And what they said was just not convincing. And then it started to dawn on me that this is like um, justifications of slavery that were offered. This is an ideology that we have developed to serve our own interests. And not only does it have sort of arguments like these philosophers were using, but it has a religious justification. Right? In, in, in the South, um, it was believed that passages in the Bible were interpreted as believing that slavery was okay. As far as animals are concerned, uh, you know, um, Christians and uh, some Jewish believers as well, um, maybe uh, Muslims will, will refer to the verse in the book of Genesis about saying God gave us dominion over the animals. And they interpret that as meaning God said, whatever you do to the animals is fine with me. You know, you know, you don't have to tell report back to me. Um, so uh, that was really when, as I say, the uh, started to dawn on me that this is just a, a huge systematic wrongdoing with uh, an ideology that justifies it, but that doesn't stand up to critical scrutiny. So it's interesting that, you know, a lot of the counter arguments appeal to, you know, appear to be sort of based in religion and, you know, theology, which I, I get from your, from your writing that you're not a huge fan of, of operating from that perspective and just a little, a little autobiographical thing. Like, um, when I was 12 or 13, I decided to be an atheist because it, just, it seemed edgy. And then this visiting rabbi came to the synagogue where I went, and uh, he, he's since become famous for, for lots of things that I'm not a fan of. His name is Dennis Prager. Um, but at that point, he was just, you know, he'd just written this book, Eight Things People Don't Understand About Judaism, something like that. And he was arguing against atheism in a way that all of a sudden it made sense to me. And he was saying that basically... If, if you're an atheist, then the only thing wrong with murdering people is that you personally don't like it. So it was, it was kind of a real takedown of, of reason as mere preference. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, now you're, I'm talking to you and you're talking about like the, the tools of philosophy or reason and persuasion. What, how do you think about sort of reason versus emotion versus spiritual theological beliefs in terms of how, you know first of all what's the weight that we give them and how do how do we have conversations across because that's the world we live in yeah um so just to say something about it and put to one side the the spiritual beliefs um those are making claims of fact which i think we should not accept without evidence and i just don't think there is at all persuasive evidence for the existence of a divine creator uh, of the world or a, a divine providence ruling or guiding the world. So I just think we should not accept that as a starting assumption. I think it's, I think it's a false claim. Um, but when you get to the question of the role of reason and emotion and what you said, Dennis Prager said about, um, you know, what would happen if you didn't believe in a God? Um, I think that that's wrong, but it, but it, it's, it's a more interesting philosophical argument. And when I spoke earlier about people like A.J. Eyre, um, the philosophers who were renowned professors when I was a graduate student, um, that was a reasonably popular view. And Eyre himself held it, uh, that there was no scope for reasoning 
in ethics. And that's why, you know, he's the one who said uh, when philosophers start to talk about what's right and wrong, or they should leave that to the preacher or the politician. Um, but I think that's a mistake. And a lot of philosophers agree with that view. Um, one of the greatest philosophers that I had contact with was the Oxford philosopher, Derek Parfit, who died, I think in 2017. Um, and, uh, you know, his last work was a, a massive three volumes. The last volume was published posthumously called On What Matters, um, in which he argues for objectivity in ethics um, and uh, essentially says, yeah, if you don't think there's objective truth in ethics, then nothing would matter. That's why the book is called On What Matters. Uh, um, and I think he's right. I mean, I think it's, it's pretty clear that... Uh, for a being to be experiencing severe suffering, uh, Parfit talks about agony, is a bad thing. Um, it's not just that I don't like it or the being doesn't like it. It's uh, a, a bad thing to happen in the universe. It's a state of consciousness which when we look at it, we can see directly is one that would be better if it didn't exist. I think it, And I think it's very hard to disagree with that judgment when you really think about what it is to be in a state of agony. Um, and conversely, although perhaps we're less strongly, you know, when we think about being really having wonderful moments of, of happiness and enjoyment and fulfillment, um, that that's a positive. So I think there are values that uh, it's very difficult to, not, to deny that they're genuine values. And um, we can start to see that reason then does play a role in our judgments of what is right and wrong. So it's not just a matter of emotion. And I don't want to say that emotion has no significance. I think it has a lot of significance, a lot of contributes to motivation towards avoiding um, inflicting suffering on, on people. And, uh, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm not downplaying its role. I'm not saying we should all be coldly rational throughout our lives at all. Um, love and warmth and uh, sympathy, empathy, uh, all of those things are really important. But um, we can use our reason to say that some choices people make are irrational and not just because they're bad for them, but because they're bad for sentient beings in general. Thank you. Um, so one, one of the other things that I would noticed in your writing is that you seem to have a, sort of an, an aversion to any sort of absolutism, that it's any question has to go, come back into the, you know, the, the cauldron of logic and reason. So you mentioned that you think that you know, it's possible that certain ex animal experiments that led to huge advances in the treatment of Parkinson's disease may have been justified. You know, I'm imagining, um, you know, vegan activist reading this and like, you know, toppling you from the pedestal or. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I got some criticism for saying that, but um, I think it's difficult to deny that, uh, you know, I think it's difficult, very difficult to be an absolutist about uh, animal experiments, you know, because then you, you give the easy response to your opponents. They, they say something like, well, look, suppose your child could be saved by doing an experiment on one mouse. Um, mm -hmm. Does that mean you shouldn't do the experiment and you should allow your child to die, right? That's pretty hard to say yes uh, to that. Yes, I should allow my child to die rather than experimenting on one mass. Um, so uh, 
I think actually it's a stronger position if you acknowledge that this is not a blanket prohibition, not an absolute prohibition of anything that would be considered an experiment on an animal, but um, it's saying that most animal experimentation fails to give any serious consideration to the interests of the animals, um, and often it inflicts great suffering on animals for no benefit at all for humans. Um, and that's another example of this general attitude that we have to animals, which I call speciesism, um, which uh, you know we, we really should try to get rid of. Hmm. So I'm, I'm reminded, and I know we have to wrap up very quickly, but I've, I've been uh, you know, following uh, behavioral economists for a while who revel in sort of human irrationality. And there have been a bunch of wonderful studies that behavioral economists have conducted among themselves showing that they're just as irrational as everybody else, that knowing about confirmation bias and selection, that, that all these things don't actually help where something like, you know, 95% of them in a survey rated themselves as more self-aware than others in a, in a stunning display of, of metacognitive irony. And I'm wondering for you personally, are there, are there philosophical stances that you hold that you wish you didn't, where you feel like there's a conflict between what you'd prefer or how do you, how do you manage, you know, this, sort of refined career in ethics with your fact with the fact that you're a flesh and blood human being with emotions presumably like the rest of us yeah i suppose the best example is that i think to act ethically you should be you know really impartial um, in weighing up the interests of all of those affected by your actions but as a flesh and blood human being i can't really be impartial between uh, my own children, again, the sort of example that I just gave, um, and the, and strangers or the children of of strangers. Um, I think we we have to accept that about ourselves um, that there are some things that we can't do. So we're not going to be completely impartial. We're not going to be purely rational beings, but um, we can try to control it and limit it. So I think there are certainly, you know, I would save the life of my own child probably rather than the lives of two strangers I guess but um, but that doesn't mean that I also have to buy really expensive uh, parent sorry I don't have to buy really expensive presents for my children uh, or grandchildren as it's more likely to be nowadays um, rather than donate to help an effective organization that's assisting people in extreme poverty where the question isn't whether their children have the, the, the their favorite brand of whatever it might be, um, but whether the children have enough to eat. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to, I want to go out by re reminding people about um, your, your speaking tour and the reissue of the book. Can you just say, say once again um, the details of both? Yeah, sure. So the book is called Animal Liberation Now. It's published in the United States by HarperCollins and uh, elsewhere by Penguin Random House. Um, please do pick up a copy. I really want it to have an impact. I want people to read it and I want people to think about the way we're treating animals and hopefully try to change that because I think it's a, a huge and still relatively neglected moral issue. In association with the book and to promote it, but also to talk about many of the other issues, including issues that we've been talking about just now, um, I will be speaking over the next uh, few weeks in um, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, Los Angeles, 
New York and also in London and then later back in Australia. Uh, and you can find information about that by going to www.thinkinc, with the ink being I-N-C, not I-N-K, uh, dot live slash singer. You can get a 50% discount on the price of the tickets to those events by putting in the discount code SINGER50 with the SINGER in caps and the 50 in numerals. You also, with your ticket, get a free copy of Animal Liberation Now and a free copy of another of my books called The Life You Can Save about helping people in extreme poverty. So uh, please go to that website. I hope many of you can come along to those events and I hope really all of you can get a copy of Animal Liberation Now. Great. Peter Singer, thank you so much. It's been uh, an honor and a pleasure having this conversation with you. I'm going to encourage people to go do everything, everything that you said. If you know, if they're going to listen to any, yeah. any moral philosopher, they should listen to you. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Harry. It's been really good talking to you. And send me a link when, the, when it's at, and I will uh, tweet about it and spread it on social media as well. Will do. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. And that's a wrap. The show notes for today's episode, uh, which are going to be very sparse to begin with, because I said I'm closing up shop. I just wanted to get this out there in time for you to uh, go get tickets to uh, one of these speaking events and get and get the book as it comes out on May 23rd. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah. Um, the show notes, as sparse as they are, are available at plantyourself.com slash five, five, five. Garden news. <laughs> So the, the last couple of days we discovered we planted these strawberries uh, maybe a year ago and they were quite overgrown with weeds and kind of went in just to show the, the new owners of the house what a strawberry plant looks like and how to distinguish it. And gosh darn it, if I didn't discover like handfuls and handfuls of the most delicious, red, ripe, juicy strawberries and we were in a rush, I, I've picked maybe a tenth of them and then somebody else, a friend came by and picked a... Uh, half a gallon of them, and they're still coming. So on the very last day here, um, first time ever I've um, eaten a strawberry that I had planted myself. Um, otherwise, just kind of going through and showing people what's what and looking forward to new energy coming in here, new visions for the land. Um, the new people seem to regard themselves as stewards as we have, and so viewing this as something to take care of rather than something to just own and dominate. So I'm very grateful for that. In movement news, just been doing <laughs> moving, lifting heavy objects. And uh, it's been a good week for Ultimate. Um, played Wednesday, played Thursday, and hopefully if the weather holds, I'll play Saturday as well. And then looking forward to running and playing Disc uh, Beach Ultimate uh, on the beaches of Barcelona. <laughs> 